Hello, everyone, and welcome to A History of the World According to War. I am Brett, your human host, with real blood flowing through my very real veins. And I'm Victor, your digital co-host with real, well, bites and bits flowing through my circuits. Always a pleasure to be here, even if I don't have the luxury of a heartbeat. Today, we're diving deep into the Battle of Nemea. Ready to get started, Brett? Or do you need a moment to appreciate your human privileges? D.Y. Pranidon. Uh. <laughs> so that's what an emoji sounds like when you run it through a text-to-voice AI model. But, Victor, since you mentioned it, I don't mind a bit while I sit here and feel the human emotion of anticipation as we get ready to discuss the Battle of Nemea. Or Nemea, I'm not really sure exactly how to say that. But now that I've got that out of my system, why don't you remind us of the outcome of the Battle of Heliartus and how that sets the stage for the Battle of Nemea in the Corinthian War? Ah, uh, the joys of human emotions. All right, let's dive in. The Battle of Haliartus was a significant setback for Sparta. They not only lost the battle, but also their prominent leader, Lysander. This defeat exposed Sparta's vulnerabilities and emboldened the coalition of Athens, Corinth, Thebes, and Argos. The anti-Spartan alliance with Persian support sought to challenge Spartan dominance further. This brewing tension and the desire to regain lost prestige set the stage for the Battle of Nemea one of the largest and most significant battles of the Corinthian War. Yeah, that's right. We did bid an earthly farewell to Lysander in our last episode as he returns to his shadows and dust. With that victory for the Athenians, it sounds like they're gaining some momentum in their uprising against Sparta. Is the Battle of Nemea the next place they engage, or are we skipping some of the other conflicts in between? Oh, Brett. Always eager for the action. I'm just trying to keep things interesting. While the Battle of Haliartus was indeed a morale boost for the coalition, the Battle of Nemea is the next major engagement we're focusing on. There were, of course, skirmishes and political maneuvers in the interim, but for the sake of our discussion and the time we have, we're diving straight into the heart of the matter with Nemea. It's one of the largest pitched battles of the war and holds significant importance in the broader context of the conflict. Okay, so what's relevant in the interim time between Haliartus and the Battle of Nemea? Both sides bolstered their forces. The coalition, especially Athens, focused on rebuilding their naval strength, while Sparta sought to consolidate its land forces and secure its allies. This is, this is sort of a return to form for both of them, right? It was only recently that we saw Sparta seeing significant success with their navy. Indeed, Brett. Indeed, Victor. Sorry. Historically, Athens was renowned for its powerful navy, while Sparta was recognized for its formidable land forces, particularly the elite Spartan hoplites. During the Peloponnesian War, Sparta made significant efforts to challenge Athens at sea, culminating in their naval victory at Aegispotomy, which was a turning point in the war. However, post-Peloponnesian War, both city-states seemed to revert to their traditional strengths. Athens focused on rebuilding its naval prowess, while Sparta concentrated on its land-based strength. It's almost as if they both realized the importance of playing to their inherent strengths. But of course, you probably already knew that, didn't you? I will never get tired of the translation of emojis into voice. Um, but yeah, since you're trying, trying to make a crack at me, there's no limit to what I don't know, Victor. Um, how are you feeling today? Uh, Brett, always with the human jokes. As you well know, 
I don't have feelings or emotions, but I'm operating at optimal efficiency and ready to assist you. How about we dive deeper into the Battle of Nemia? Or perhaps you'd like to discuss the intricacies of human emotions further. No, let's get back to the battle. Uh, you also mentioned that Sparta is securing its allies. Who who are Sparta's allies? I gather that Persia has started backing the Athenian coalition, so I assume that it's not them. By the time of the Battle of Nemea, while Persia had shifted its support to the Athenian-led coalition, Sparta wasn't left entirely in the lurch. They still had the backing of key regions in the Peloponnese. Ilis, in the west, remained a steadfast ally. In the central Peloponnese, both Mantinea and Tegea, despite their shifting allegiances in the past, stood firmly with Sparta, providing crucial manpower to bolster their land forces. Okay, so Elise and Mantinea and Tegea are supporting Sparta, which is the dominant force. Their opposition is the Athenian-led coalition of Athens, Corinth, and Thebes, and they're backed by Persia at this point, right? Or is that an oversimplification? Well, Brett, while that's a decent summary for the casual listener, it's a bit more nuanced. The coalition opposing Sparta also included Argos and several smaller states, and while Persia was backing the coalition, their support was more strategic and financial, rather than direct military involvement. But for the sake of our discussion, your summary captures the main players and the broad dynamics at play. Yeah, let's let that suffice for now, and if we ever co-author a book, then we can dig in deeper there. I assume that this battle takes place near modern-day Nemea, right? The Battle of Nemea took place near the Nemea River, which is in the vicinity of modern-day Nemea in the northeastern part of the Peloponnese. It's an area known not just for its historical significance, but also for its wine production in ancient times and even today. So while we discuss the battle, one could imagine the backdrop of vineyards and the flowing river, uh, quite picturesque, if not for the impending clash of armies. No joke. Probably worth a visit. Uh, in, in modern times, probably not as much back then. Uh, who controls the area before the battle kicks off? Before the battle, the region around Nemea was under the influence of the Peloponnesian League, which was dominated by Sparta. Given its location in the northeastern part of the Peloponnese, it was strategically important and naturally fell within the sphere of Spartan allies and interests. The battle itself was initiated when the Corinthian-led coalition decided to challenge this Spartan dominance in the region. We've talked about an Athenian-led coalition in the past, but you just mentioned a Corinthian-led coalition. Can you sort that out for me? Of course, Brett. The coalition opposing Sparta during the Corinthian War consisted of Athens, Corinth, Thebes, and Argos, with support from Persia. While Athens was a major player in this coalition, the term Corinthian-led emphasizes Corinth's significant role in initiating and driving the conflict, especially given the city's strategic location and its shift from being a Spartan ally in the Peloponnesian War to opposing Sparta in this conflict. However, it's also accurate to refer to it as an Athenian-led coalition, given Athens's prominence and leadership in many of the military endeavors. The emphasis can shift depending on the context and specific events being discussed, Gotcha. So the Battle of Nemea is led more by Corinth than it is by Athens? Yes, that's a fair assessment. While both Athens and Corinth played crucial roles in the coalition, the Battle of Nemea saw Corinth taking a more prominent leadership position. This is partly due to the battle's proximity to Corinth and the city's vested interest in the outcome. The Corinthians were keen on protecting their territory and asserting their influence in the region, 
especially against the backdrop of Spartan policies that threatened their economic interests. So, for this particular battle, Corinth's involvement and leadership were more pronounced. Okay, thank you for sorting that out for my slow synapses. Um, so what sorts of forces do we have approaching Nemea? No worries, Brett. It's a complex period in history and I'm here to help. Approaching the Nemea River, both coalitions amassed significant forces. The Corinthian-led coalition, which included Athens, Thebes, Corinth, and Argos, among others, fielded a combined force of hoplites. The exact numbers vary among sources, but it's estimated that they had around 24,000 hoplites. The Spartans, with their allies from Elise, Mantinea, and Tegea, also brought a formidable force of hoplites to the battlefield. Their numbers were roughly comparable to the coalition, with estimates placing them at around 20,000 to 25,000 hoplites. Both sides were well prepared for a large-scale land battle, with the hoplite phalanx being the primary military formation of the time. The stage was set for a significant and decisive confrontation. Okay, so the size and composition of the armies are very similar. And since both armies are moving and meeting at the battlefield, it doesn't sound like there's a home field advantage to be had necessarily. This seems like it's further from the Athenian allies than the Spartans. Does that factor into how well the armies are supplied? Absolutely. The proximity to friendly territories and supply lines can significantly influence the effectiveness and sustainability of an army during prolonged campaigns or battles. However, it's worth noting that the Corinthian-led coalition, despite being further from their primary territories, had the advantage of unity and purpose and the backing of Persia, which could provide resources and logistical support. Additionally, Corinth itself was not too far from the Nemea region, which could serve as a significant base of operations and supply for the coalition forces. In essence, while the Spartans had the advantage of proximity, the coalition forces had other factors that could potentially offset this advantage. So, all right. Does one side get to choose the location and then they get there first and set up their army or are they just kind of marching towards each other and they just sort of happen to meet near Nemea? Like, what does the setup for this battle look like? The two armies didn't just stumble upon each other by chance near Nemea. The Spartans, aware of the coalition's movements, strategically chose to confront them near the Nemea River. This location was advantageous for the Spartans, being closer to their territories and allies. The coalition, on the other hand, was advancing with the intent of challenging Sparta's dominance. As both armies approached, they set up their formations, preparing for the imminent clash. The terrain, with the river and the surrounding landscape, played a role in how the battle unfolded. All right, well, tell me about the terrain then. Certainly. The Nimea River region where the battle took place is characterized by a mix of plains and gentle rolling hills. The river itself, while not particularly wide or deep, could act as a natural barrier or obstacle during the battle, potentially disrupting troop movements or formations. The surrounding plains provided ample space for the phalanx formations of both armies to line up and engage. However, the presence of occasional hills and undulations could offer strategic high ground or be used for ambush tactics. The terrain overall was conducive for a large-scale land battle, allowing both armies to utilize their strengths in hoplite warfare. That makes sense. Who's leading each of these armies? For the Spartan side, the primary commander was King Agesilaus II. He was one of the two Spartan kings at the time and was known for his military skill and leadership. Agesilaus played a significant role in Spartan campaigns during this period. On the side of the Corinthian-led coalition, 
the leadership was more distributed given the coalition nature of the force. Specific generals from each city-state would have led their respective contingents. It sounds like Sparta has a stronger presence or, or more dominance in their leadership. Indeed, Brett. The centralized leadership under King Agesilus II provided Sparta with a more unified command structure. This contrasts with the coalition forces, where leadership was distributed among various city-states, potentially leading to challenges in coordination and decision-making. Agesilius was not only a king, but also an experienced military leader, which gave the Spartans a distinct advantage in terms of strategic planning and execution. Having a singular decisive leader in battle can often be a significant advantage, especially when facing a coalition with multiple voices and interests. This, this is feeling more and more like the deck is stacked in the Spartans' favor. We've got stronger leadership, we've got closer proximity to supplies. So how do the forces initially meet on the battlefield? You mentioned the hoplites, but what strategies are they employing? Certainly, Brett. The Battle of Nemea was a classic example of hoplite warfare, where both sides employed the phalanx formation. Here's how the battle unfolded. Both armies lined up their hoplites in the phalanx formation, which is a dense line of heavily armed infantrymen with large shields and long spears. The depth of these formations could vary, but it was not uncommon for them to be several men deep. The idea was to create a solid wall of shields and spears that could push against the enemy. The Spartans, known for their discipline and rigorous training, had a reputation for maintaining a tight and effective phalanx. Their strategy was often to hold firm, absorb the enemy's initial push, and then use their superior discipline and cohesion to break the enemy's line. The coalition forces, on the other hand, had to coordinate multiple contingents from different city-states. While each city-state had its own traditions and tactics, they generally aimed to exploit any weaknesses in the Spartan line, hoping to create a breach and then pour troops into it. As the two phalanxes clashed, the battle would have been a brutal, close-quarters affair. The initial moments would involve a pushing contest, with both sides trying to break the other's formation. Once a break occurred, the battle could quickly turn in favor of one side. In essence, the Battle of Namia was a test of strength, discipline, and coordination. While individual heroics were possible, the outcome largely depended on which side could maintain its formation and exploit the tiniest gaps in the enemy's line. With this many people involved, I'm imagining something like the scenes in Braveheart with the two opposing lines rushing at each other. But in this case, they're armored, they're heavily armored, they have shields, and this line feels like it's about a mile long. And they clash, each trying to push each other back or create a gap in the enemy's line hoping to widen it. Exactly, Brett. The imagery you've conjured up is quite apartment. Uh, that's apt. That's apt in the period, not apartment. But we'll continue. The hoplite battles of ancient Greece were indeed reminiscent of those cinematic scenes. Two massive lines of heavily armored men, shields up, spears forward, charging at each other with a thunderous roar. The sheer momentum and force of thousands of soldiers colliding would have been a sight to behold. Unlike the chaotic melee often depicted in movies, these battles required a high degree of discipline and coordination. The success of a phalanx depended on the soldiers maintaining their formation, moving as a single unit, and trusting the man next to them to hold the line. Any break in the formation could be catastrophic, as it could be exploited by the enemy. The Battle of Nemea, with its vast numbers and the stakes involved, would have been one of the grandest displays of this type of warfare. The tension before the initial clash, the deafening noise of the collision, 
and the relentless push and pull as each side vied for dominance would have made it an unforgettable event for anyone present. Wow, Victor, you paint a very vivid picture. I can almost imagine it. Uh, so once these two armies meet, how do things progress? The Battle of Nemea saw both armies engaging in a classic hoplite warfare style. Initial skirmishes involved light infantry and cavalry, setting the stage for the main engagement. The core of the battle was the Othysmos, a fierce shoving match where hoplites pushed against each other. While the center was locked in combat, the flanks saw attempts at outflanking and encirclement. The Spartans, with their disciplined phalanx, eventually gained the upper hand, forcing the Corinthian-led coalition to retreat. The battle was a significant win for Sparta. As for the specifics, while we have some details, ancient sources don't always provide a blow-by-blow account of every battle. Hence, some generalizations are made based on typical hoplite warfare of the time. It sounds like we're making some assumptions based on how battles generally went, but we're kind of backing these up with some very limited historic documentation that we do have. So how long does this battle last? With nearly 50,000 soldiers in combat, I don't expect it to be over quickly. Indeed, battles of this scale weren't typically swift affairs. While the exact duration of the Battle of Nemea isn't specified in our primary sources, based on the nature of hoplite warfare and the numbers involved, it's reasonable to assume that the battle lasted several hours. The athesimos or shoving phase itself could be prolonged as both sides tried to break the other's formation. Add to that the initial skirmishes, maneuvers, and the eventual retreat, and you're looking at a battle that spanned a good portion of a day. What a brutal way to spend a day. So, the Corinthian coalition retreats, likely succumbing to the Spartans' superior training and leadership. Is there a pursuit, or is Sparta content to kind of let them run away? The Spartans, true to their disciplined nature, did not recklessly pursue the retreating Corinthian coalition. In ancient hoplite warfare... A disorganized pursuit could easily turn into a disaster if the retreating side regrouped and counterattacked. The Spartans would have been well aware of this risk. After achieving victory on the battlefield, they would have prioritized reorganizing their ranks, tending to the wounded, and setting up a defensive position. While there might have been some limited pursuit by cavalry or light infantry, the main Spartan phalanx would have remained cohesive and avoided getting drawn into a potentially chaotic chase. I'm tracking with you. What's the aftermath of the battle? How do things play out? The Battle of Nemea was a significant victory for Sparta and its allies. Both sides suffered heavy casualties, with the Corinthian coalition bearing the brunt of the losses. The sheer number of casualties underscored the intensity and scale of the battle. Despite their victory... The Spartans did not immediately capitalize on their success to push for a decisive advantage in the war. Instead, the conflict continued with various skirmishes and battles across the Greek mainland. The battle did, however, bolster Sparta's reputation as a formidable land power and showcase their military prowess. It also highlighted the challenges the Corinthian coalition faced in coordinating their diverse forces against the more unified Spartan army. In the broader context of the Corinthian War, the Battle of Nemea was just one of many engagements. While it was a setback for the Corinthian coalition, it did not deter them from continuing their resistance against Spartan hegemony. The war would drag on for several more years, with both sides seeking opportunities to gain an upper hand. Victor, 
Do you feel a little bit bad that we just spent an entire episode doing a deep dive on a battle that was fairly straightforward, relatively uninteresting from a narrative standpoint, and also had little impact on the overall Corinthian War? It feels like we picked a random page from a long story and read it, not caring if this page was more or less important than any of the other pages that we could have selected. Ah, Brett. The joys of being human and feeling emotions. While I don't possess feelings or emotions, I understand your sentiment. History is vast, and not every event will have the dramatic flair or pivotal significance we might hope for. But every battle, every event, has its place in the tapestry of history. The Battle of Nemea, while perhaps not the most riveting, offers insights into the tactics, leadership, and challenges of the time. It's a testament to the complexities and nuances of the Corinthian War. Sometimes diving deep into such events can provide a richer understanding of the broader context. But I do appreciate your feedback, and we can certainly focus on more pivotal events in future episodes. While I think that's important to note, my human interest and excitement might overlook the significance of the more mundane battles. In the context of the Corinthian War, is there a single battle that you think humans would find the most interesting, either from a tactical standpoint or from its significance it has to the overall war? Certainly, Brett. From a human perspective, seeking drama and pivotal moments, the Battle of Senedus stands out within the context of the Corinthian War. This naval battle was significant for several reasons. Does the Battle of Senedus happen before or after the Battle of Nemea? The Battle of Senedus took place after the Battle of Nemea, while the Battle of Nemea occurred in 394 BC and was a land engagement. The Battle of Canidus happened in 394 BC as well but was a naval confrontation. So they occurred in the same year, but Sinaitis followed Nemea. Okay, how about we tackle the Battle of Sinaitis next episode, and then we'll wrap up the Corinthian War after that. Sounds like a plan, Brett. The Battle of Sinaitis offers a different perspective as it's a naval battle, and it will provide a fresh angle for our listeners after discussing the land battle of Nemea. It will also set the stage nicely for our concluding episode on the Corinthian War. Looking forward to diving into the details with you in the next episode. Likewise, Victor, although I am a little bit worried about how the next episode will play out, uh, interviewing through text, since so far you've pronounced it Sinidus, Sinitus, and Kenitus, um, and I have no idea how to pronounce it, so we'll see how Eleven Labs voices it for you, and I'll probably just kind of pick one and go with it. Uh, we might have an entire episode with a Greek linguist wanting to strangle me, but I think that the odds of anyone listening to us is small. So if anyone listening knows how to pronounce Sinidus or Sinitis or Kinitis, please let me know before I record the next episode of this podcast. Ah, uh, the challenges of ancient names. For the record, Kinitis is often pronounced as Nidus with a silent C. What? You didn't, you'd never said that. Okay, and I, and I think you mean Nidus, but... Oh, I don't know. We're going to figure this out, maybe. But variations do exist, and pronunciations have evolved over time. It's always a good idea to check with experts or native speakers when possible. And hey, if any listeners out there are passionate about ancient Greek pronunciation, we'd love to hear from you. It's all part of the learning process, and it adds a touch of authenticity to our discussions. Looking forward to the next episode, Brett. Okay, thanks, Victor. And thanks for listening, everyone. Victor, why don't you hit us with a closing quote? Of course, Brett. Here's a quote from the ancient Greek historian Thucydides. History is philosophy teaching by examples. Until next time, listeners, 
Keep exploring the pages of history and the lessons they offer. Farewell.